Hello and welcome to the Psycom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. Psycom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At Psycom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize, and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can actually easily implement. So today we have behind the mics from my from our team Sherry, Melissa, Heather, and Minavena. We also have again a special guest, and this time that's Ruben Oliveira. Do I pronounce it correctly? Yes, yes. <laughs> An ecologist <laughs> turning into science communicator who works for the Portuguese Ecological Society. Say hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. <laughs> on Monday for the 1st of April, which wasn't at all on April's Fool's joke and as it became very quickly obvious by the Twitter chat, we had a very interesting uh, Twitter chat in a slight different time than, than usual. So it was very comfortable this time for our European audience uh, that was co-hosted by Sherry and Ruben together. And it was on an article that Ruben selected and it was uh, that that's entitled Our House is Burning, Discrepancies in Climate Change and Biodiversity Coverage in the Media as Compared to Scientific Literature. And I would like our Twitter chat hosts, first of all, to Ruben introduce yourself a little bit more and then introduce the topic and why did you choose that article? Okay, so you introduced me very well, so <laughs> I have like nothing to add, <laughs> really. Uh, but yes, I'm an ecologist, I work for the Portuguese Ecological Society, and uh, I chose this article because it talks about uh, two major problems, climate change and the loss of biodiversity, and how uh, climate change is surpassing the loss of biodiversity in terms of media attention. Uh, despite the, the scientific literature and the amount of uh, published articles. Uh, I found it very uh, amusing to read <laughs> and uh, a very interesting uh, work that should be done by uh, many more uh, scientists and many, in many more countries. And it has interesting outcomes that uh, will be discussed. <laughs> So, Sherry, how about you give us a short summary of the paper itself since you hosted as well the chat? Sure. So, um, just a little bit of a background. Basically, in the background of the article, there was this um, summary about how organizations like um, IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, um, how organizations like this can form a bridge between scientists and stakeholders and policymakers. Um, and again, their effort, efforts of IPCC uh, kind of helps get media attention to topics like that. But what happens is their general observation, which they try to back up with their research, is that media tends to filter the information they get from IPCC or from science public information officers or uh, PR events, such that the public doesn't really get the whole picture. And because public the public has such an influence on policymakers, um, ultimately what policymakers decide to do has a lot of 
it really depends on what the public asks them to do because they represent them and they, those are the ones who, um, uh, who vote them into office. So the initial premise, the null hypothesis they started was that whenever a major scientific or something that is significant in the scientific field is published, there is continuity of transfer of information to, from the scientists to media, policymakers, and the public. And that's their wish. And then they went and looked into, um, looked into it to see whether the transfer of information is um, complete. And it's an accurate representation of what's going on, the findings in the scientific field. So they analyzed the scientific literature, research funding, and press articles from major newspapers in USA, Canada, and United Kingdom. And they asked, what is the extent of amount of scientific research that is happening in climate change and biodiversity? What is the amount of funding that is being awarded to these two fields? And what is the amount of press coverage about these two topics? So they compared them with respect to frequency of addressing these topics. And they chose the English language, they say, because um, they wanted to avoid potential biases in the number of newspaper articles, which I don't really don't know what that means. But they mm -hmm. also say we also selected countries with long-term data available regarding research funding. So I guess that's the English language countries. And the results basically show that there is a discrepancy right now currently, um, and it's between the coverage of biodiversity and climate change. There is a lot of coverage uh, by the media about climate change, but um, there is uh, almost non-existence or compared to climate change, very little coverage by the media about biodiversity, even though these two are so connected. Mm -hmm. um, and the coverage of uh, climate change correlates really well with major events like the uh, Conference of Parties events that happens every year. So this shows that publicizing um, these big events makes a big difference. So now the question is, okay, why is there such discrepancy? Is there less research um, for biodiversity in the scientific field? Um, and what is the level of funding? And it turns out that um, scientific papers that are published in peer-reviewed literature started out to be quite even uh, in the 1990s when they started the uh, searching for data. And the gap kept increasing and increasing to favor climate change. And then uh, research funding followed the same pattern. So climate change tends to get more total funding in US dollars. So um, there, but the gap between, uh, the, the amount of gap for climate change and biodiversity is much, much larger in the media. So there is research going on in the scientific community. There is funding for biodiversity, but it's just not being covered. So there is a huge gap that needs to be addressed. And if, if the media doesn't address it, then the public won't hear it. So they offered a number of possible underlying reasons. One's that IPCC was created 
more than 20 years ago before IPBES, which is the society that uh, basically wants to do, this, do the same thing as IPCC does, but, but focusing on biodiversity. This organization is a little uh, maybe 20, 20 years younger, so maybe it'll take time uh, for their efforts to show a difference. Um, uh, the second very interesting suggestion for this discrepancy is that the climate skeptic publications have actually allowed the conversation about climate change to be more frequent. So they have, they have uh, created doubt in the public's mind about climate change, but, but it also has increased the frequency of climate change conversations because of this a false equivalence of balanced reporting in the media. Uh, another thing is that the effects of climate change, uh, they think are more tangible in, for the public in terms of economic terms. Uh, that, that's why politicians uh, pay more attention to it. It's kind of, uh, it hasn't, we haven't, or the media or the scientific community, haven't done a really good job of connecting biodiversity to economic uh, consequences. Um, and uh, one other reason is that the media may not relay information about biodiversity as much as climate change because uh, biodiversity is perceived to have only local effects, but climate change is uh, thought to have a global effect. Then uh, from a global perspective, uh, the authors suggest there are fewer resources devoted to IPBES as compared to IPCC. IPCC gets a lot more resources. Uh, public and educational outreach are poorly supported by educational institutions and basically scientists are not rewarded for doing public outreach. Um, so that if they do public outreach, that doesn't help them with their career advancement. And we all know that that's a big issue. Finally, they say biodiversity is improperly perceived as more specialized and less accessible compared to climate change. Uh, so these are some of the solutions that they, uh, I mean, sorry, underlying reasons that they offered, which some of this, which we recognize. So what are some of the solutions? And I love papers that offer solutions rather than just stating the problem. So uh, one of the possible solutions is to convey accurate and well-structured information on biodiversity. So basically we need more, we need to talk more about biodiversity in a way that is um, better communicated. Uh, reports on global issues of biodiversity, like interconnections, ecosystem functions, and the value of biodiversity for human well-being, like ecosystem services. I don't know many people that know what ecosystem services are. I didn't know until I started teaching ecology. And that's alarming. Uh, biodiversity scientists should create more media events around major or minor discoveries. And finally, they feel biodiversity needs a public figure, like Al Gore for climate change. So uh, other solutions, create an intergovernmental platform on climate change. So you, we talk about climate change and biodiversity together. And then uh, also they say we should take what we learned from climate change communication, effective climate change communication, 
and use it to communicating biodiversity. Um, and finally, implement citizen science project on biodiversity. To be honest, I have to admit that um, reading the facts, uh, one of the conclusions, well, one of the discussion points that the paper put out, that biodiversity is perceived as more specialized issue. I, only when I read that in the article, I realized, and in the Twitter chat when it came up, I realized that I was guilty of that myself, because I thought that, well, of course, biodiversity will have slightly less attention than climate change, because biodiversity is part of climate change is a consequence of climate change but then i'm thinking well no that shouldn't really be the case at all even though it might be mostly stemming of uh, or a result of climate change that doesn't mean that it should get um less less attention than that on the contrary and um it's good that we have uh, ruben here because one of the solutions that they provide is with the um, uh, possibility to create or the aim to create more um, public events and more to create more attention to the problem. This is what Ruben and his organization are doing. So, um, what's your take on that, Ruben? So, uh, let me just first start from another point of view, if you, if you allow me. Of course, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, because recently I had a chance to be with uh, Professor Mohan Munasing which was a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, together with, with Al Gore, uh, that uh, they both launched the, the IPCC. And uh, he, he like gave me a, a wake-up call, because he said climate change is not the only problem we're facing, and the, 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 big, the biggest problem of climate change is by exacerbating all the other problems. So the loss of biodiversity is a problem and climate change is making it way worse. So uh, this is like a point that I really wanted to focus because I, I didn't think uh, this way before listening to him. So, and in the, in the article, um, one, one incredible uh, article that was published in uh, 2009 uh, by Johan Rockstrom, that talked about the, the planetary boundaries. So he established a few uh, limits to the planet to, to, to hold. And, and if, if you see the image, you, you like the, the first uh, connection you, you have with the image is seeing that biodiversity laws is one of the planetary boundaries that was like surpassed, uh, like largely surpassed. And climate change is not there yet. So, yes, it's really a problem. Uh, people do not knowing how the loss of biodiversity will impact them. And uh, Sherry, is, was that you that said, talked about the ecosystem services, right? Yeah. I, I mm -hmm. totally agree with you. It's, a, it's a, an important concept that nobody knows about. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what is it then, the ecosystem services? So the you have a different type of ecosystem services, but the overall meaning are like the services that the ecosystems provide to us. And you have like cultural and provision and like material like timber, for example, and like climate regulation and the fish that we capture. And you have different, the, like the cultural includes um, our well-being 
and like the need we have to go to like walk in a park and walk in in a forest so we you have like a lot of um different types of ecosystem services correct me if i'm wrong sherry please yes. <laughs> Yes, that's true. And I honestly, I think ecosystem services concept needs a new name because it just, you know, what does that mean? But it's, it's uh, not, like I said, yes. yeah, go ahead. No, no, continue, continue. I was agreeing with you. Yeah. And honestly, I, until, I mean, I'm trained in the sciences and until I started teaching ecology as part of my job, I, I didn't know what ecosystem services was. I really didn't have a good understanding uh, as uh, uh, understanding of my place within nature as a human being. And that's, I think, alarming. I mean, if we don't know, if we are scientists and we don't realize that and we see ourselves not as part of nature, what do we expect from, yes. from other people? And and the and the loss of biodiversity is totally connected with these ecosystem services because like every species plays a role in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know that uh, game that's Jenga. And if you uh, like keep pulling species uh, from the ecosystem and lead them to uh, to extinction, the ecosystem falls apart and is no longer able to provide those services. Okay, so yeah, and people, since people do not know what ecosystem services are, they can't connect the loss of biodiversity to these services and the well-being they provide to humans. But it's very, um, just because, um, and especially in the United States, it's very easy to, for humans to separate themselves from the ecosystem because we look at ourselves as above, above it all. It's, it's, it's a matter of um, the ego versus the, the eco. Um, as was explained in the Twitter chat, and we, what what are some of the, what are some of your personal experiences or any experiences that you know of that have allowed people to 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 look at that differently and say, oh, I'm connected to all of this. We're connected to all of this. We're we're all on the same boat here, and the boat is sinking. So you don't really have a project that is so direct and specific. Like you said, unfortunately, of course. Uh, but you, you do have small projects here and there, and citizen science projects are uh, now becoming are increasing in in their in their objectives and their aims. And uh, for example, in Portugal, you have a problem that, and I believe it's a common problem elsewhere, that uh, uh, the citizen science projects are very focused on the data, the data that people are going to collect for a science project, okay? Not always to, to uh, I don't know, teach people about the project, about the problem, about the solution, but to collect data. How this helps people understanding what they are doing and help them change their behavior and think differently, I'm not sure about, about it. So maybe, maybe we need a good guidelines, a general guidelines for effective citizen science projects. Yeah, and in Portugal, it's, it's, I believe, from my point of view, I'm, I may be wrong, I hope not, <laughs> that this is a problem. And uh, since Neveno was asking about the initiative that uh, our society promotes, uh, we had in 2017, yes, and now in 2018, and 
hopefully this year also, um, a celebration that is called Ecology Day. Oh, nice. It's celebrated on the 14th of September, the day that uh, Ernst Eccel defined ecology. And uh, we promote with different organizations, dif different NGOs, different uh, companies, even um, activities that uh, help them reach their objectives and help us uh, embedding in the, in the public several notions of ecology. And now we are trying to, by the first time, uh, try to understand what people know about ecology. From That's the definition wonderful. to the impacts it has on the society, on the economics, on politics, on many other sectors. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we have, uh, so in the United States, we have the USA Science and Engineering Festival. And I think, again, that Science and Engineering Festival, it raises a lot of awareness. It's wonderful. It's gone grown really uh, astronomically. Um, but again, yes. it focuses a lot on the science and technology serving us as human beings. So I, I feel like we need a festival just for ecology and nature and introducing ecosystem services to people using these festivals. And, and ecosystem services is really, really important because climate change is one step ahead because it has direct consequences and people know about it and people do not know about the direct consequences that the lack of these services provided by the ecosystems will have and so it's really because that that is one of the the major uh, problems facing that biodiversity faces is the lack of direct consequences or the the lack of knowledge about these consequences and so, yes, I totally agree with you. Ecosystem services are a wonderful way of promoting uh, directly the problems and solutions that ecosystem, ecosystems provide us. I think one of the things, too, you know, when we think about, like, public engagement and, you know, biodiversity, you know, kind of as a broad issue area is, again, you know, what people's personal experiences are. I mean, we all observe the weather every day when we get, you know, when we go out and, you know, trying to figure out what to wear. And, and so I think that there's some things that sort of, you know, stick in terms of, like, what's people's regular routine? Are they actually in their own minds? thinking that they're observing sort of a piece of like you know, climate change um, when they go out, um, when they go on vacation, they go to the beach, whatever. And biodiversity, I think it's harder because we're just in it all the time. And so we don't separate out like our own observations of us interacting with that and then just sort of the world around us that just is. And I think that like from a, like a again, from a non-scientific perspective, um, you know, when we think about kind of the public's mindset on that, maybe creating ways for people to engage and really be intentionally observing the, you know, ecological systems that are out, you know, that they are going to be interacting with every single day. So maybe it's like, notice the birds, in the trees, notice things, but bring it down to like where they're at. If you go out and you garden, um, if you're walking to work and you, you know, see something, you know, so kind of bringing it back where people actually are basically, you're training them to be observers. Um, and so then you're sort of 
subtly starting to get them into the issue of being a little bit more receptive potentially to the idea uh, that, that biodiversity is a problem and you're kind of teaching them to think that this is a system because I think that we don't, you know, here at least in the U.S., you know, by and large our education system doesn't focus on systems thinking. Um, I, I think it's challenging for, uh, um, you know, even those of us that have, you know, come into sciences to, to really be intentional about observing things when we're not sort of in that mindset of that we're doing our job, we're being scientists. And so I think that that might be something that, you know, might be worth doing. So if you're going to have an event or a festival or some sort of other large visible event, make it really experiential um, and train people to put themselves in that where they start to really think about how things are connected. Um, I think we have a, we have a site actually um, that's made a mission statement about that. Yeah, Experience Dolina. Uh, he, it's uh, one of the winners of our State Your Mission Challenge. And he is actually, what he does uh, is directly related to this lack of conversation about nature. What he does, he sets up science um, conversations. He sets up a table in a park. And as people are visiting the parks, he introduces them to science. And that's, we actually, uh, we mentioned, tagged him in during the Twitter chat, and he actually responded uh, very positively, and apparently he's done some of that. So um, we're so happy that we were able to find him through the State Your Mission Challenge, and amazing things we find every year through this challenge. Yeah, and, and we have to remember that the mindset for, for something like this when it comes to biodiversity is, it, it seems to, yeah. that the, the best option is to think globally, but start locally. Uh, mm -hmm. And to just kind of have it have a, a ripple effect um, in a sense, um, because it, it, we're not going to get anywhere if we don't have the communities on our side, um, because it just it goes up that that political ladder before change is ever. And those are you know those are the kinds of really like hyper local initiatives that make a huge difference though. And I think that there's a certain you know the other issue that kind of comes into the biodiversity sphere. I think is um, you know even looking at like indigenous communities and how they actually exist with the environment um you know rather than sort of going in there and, and doing what we you know at least we westerners kind of do and blow everything down and build it you know <laughs> in, in unsustainable ways um but really looking at indigenous communities and kind of how they're looking at it so in terms of like lifestyle practices or approaches um for daily living um where you can coexist with the environment working in a more harmonious way um I did some work um, in the Amazon at one point, um, and we, we went into indigenous communities and actually looked exactly at that, um, you know, looking at like environmental networking um, in Brazil. And so it was really interesting and enlightening to say, okay, there are communities that are living more in harmony with, with the very sensitive habitats that they're living in. Um, what is it that they're doing? Let's, let's learn from that. You were talking about um, the importance of connecting people to biodiversity, and I, I remember one one uh, power uh, that biodiversity has that climate change does not have, and is a power of fascinating people, and and we we really need to use this power to uh, to help improving uh, people's knowledge about biodiversity, and the the article mentions a. Uh, uh, 
an example of the the success of the pollination uh, medium uh, because it, it really worked well because pollination uh, they were clear on the, the effect that the lack of pollinators would have and that that's what we've been doing like for, uh, for uh, forever because we are we are used to select uh, major problems uh, major uh, species let's say this way um, and try to use them to promote biodiversity and and i remember like the, the panda example because everyone everybody knows that the panda is an endangered species and uh, the panda was used or, or i should be used to gather attention to the other species you know it, it's called like an umbrella umbrella species in which i don't know if you know the the term they did something similar with the um, uh, polar bears for climate change, didn't they? They just needed a, a flagship activity, basically, that is recognizable yes, exactly. by, by exactly. majority of the people. And uh, when um, in the Twitter chat, people were talking about that biodiversity needs great stories and needs like uh, to impact people with, by, by showing them great motives, uh, these are the great motives that we've been using and they're not working for like every species unfortunately and it, it's simple people tend to connect to more uh, beautiful species and to uh, i don't know uh, put the others aside That's so true because when I when I teach uh, ecology and we talk about decomposers and worms and our um, you know instinct is to say ooh worms you see a worm kill it but then when you really understand how essential worms are in helping chemicals recycle that totally changes your attitude towards worms. <laughs> but the first the first uh, idea they have is like the ooh and it like it simulates yeah. to many other species and, and even, and even when we're true. talking about the connection because like go to the park and see the birds if you ask a person okay if you start uh, if you if you do not see this bird anymore here does it will have an impact on you on your well-being it's not a, a direct uh, impact People tend to say, okay, this bird is not here, but there are others. So it's really difficult to, to try to embed in people this idea that every species has its own role and altogether maintain ecosystem functioning. And uh, the, the, the article uh, compares two major uh, pro uh, programs that are the IPCC and the IPVES. Um, and one interesting uh, uh, UN decision that I hope will improve the IPVES impact on society is that uh, the UN declared the next decade, till 2030, the decade on ecological restoration. And uh, this, uh, from my point of view, has two, two sides to, to comment. One is that it's amazing because there will be many opportunities to ecological restoration projects and we really need to restore uh, ecosystems that are complete, completely degraded. 
And the other side is that uh, we already have the need to restore ecosystems. Okay, we like running on prejudice. So it's it's a really like tricky uh, feeling when this when this came out. I imagine that quite of those, quite a few of those uh, topics that we touched upon now and in the Twitter chat on Monday will be uh, hopefully uh, properly covered during the event that Europe and are part of the organization of with the European Ecological Federation. Uh, can you tell us actually more about that event? So the event for me, uh, it will be amazing. <laughs> My opinion. <laughs> I'm sure it will. <laughs> uh, uh, I sincerely. Uh, believe in this because our keynote speakers and our uh, plenary speakers are like amazing i cannot use another word so uh, this will be the 15 european ecological federation congress and the theme will be embedding ecology in sustainable development goals it is the first time that the congress will be held in portugal and it comes in a great moment because the european federation is now led by a Portuguese ecologist, uh, Professor Cristina Magos, uh, who is also the, the national vice president of the Portuguese Ecological Society. And for the first time, the Ernst Echo Prize was also awarded to a Portuguese ecologist, which is Professor Miguel Araújo, who will be one of our plenary speakers at the Congress. So the Portuguese Ecological Society, uh, which is led by Professor Maria Amélia Martins Loção, has designed this Congress to have an impact beyond, uh, beyond science. Uh, by the first time, we'll be discussing how is ecology contributing for the sustainable development goals that, like I was talking about, are like a flagship uh, for, uh, for sustainability. And from the 17 goals, we chose 10, in which you can predict a more direct contribution, contribution of the ecologists and their work. Um, the multidisciplinarity and interdisciplinarity of ecology will be highlighted as a key to connect scientists with stakeholders, companies, society, and beyond. And we have also included an art component to demonstrate creative approaches between ecology and the public. Uh, unfortunately, the abstract submission call ends tomorrow. Uh, we're happy that we'll, we'll have one of your uh, talks in our Congress. Uh, but there is plenty of time to register on our website and hopefully be present in our Congress. That sounds really awesome. So we are definitely going to stay in touch with you and, and uh, share more information when the program is uh, available for our um, audience to get involved and potentially come and meet us both there because yeah by the sound of it it would be a great event and there's no better time to do it in portugal than now and in the meantime sherry when is going to be our next twitter chat well we have a monthly twitter chat and the next one we decided to invite a science journalist in combination with a discussion on a guide recently released by american association of science writer about communicating with the media and Heather will be hosting that chat. And that's wonderful because this came out as a result of our Twitter chat. And, you know, a test of a really good discussion is what new ideas come out of it. And this was one of them. And another thing that was mentioned that I rarely hear in the SciComm community is that the concept of hierarchy of knowledge, that you have to... Um, 
take into account the level of knowledge of your audience before you throw something new at them, um, which was uh, shared by someone, I forgot his name, but he's from the Tyndall Center for Science Communication. And I loved hearing that because that's exactly the same concept, not exactly, but I have a similar concept in my book, Social Solutions for Climate Change. And both of these ideas are derived from the um, experience from the marketing industry, uh, where there we have this concept called the um, funnel. We call it a marketing funnel. And it takes into account of the stage at which an audience is, and you try to tailor the message to the stage at which to a stage of their gaining knowledge. Um, and it's kind of, it's unfortunate that we don't hear more of it because I think there, uh, there is this psychological block towards marketing. It is thought to be this dirty word and people maybe don't pay too much attention of it because of that psychological factor. But the field of PR and marketing can teach us so much. If we can just pick the right ones and apply them, those could be very powerful tools. Absolutely. So we'll be hearing definitely more about the event in, in Portugal uh, in relationship to other Twitter chats that are upcoming since it's a continuous conversation, obviously, and we'll definitely stay in touch with Ruben to, to discuss more about it. Okay, well, thanks everyone for joining in today and thanks especially Ruben for co-hosting our Twitter chat and introducing that amazing um, activity that you're starting in Portugal. I hope it would, be, it would attract a lot of attention that is necessary, not only for biodiversity, but in general for uh, environmental protection. No, thank you for having me. Bye guys. Thank thanks you. Ruben. Uh, make sure to follow us on uh, SciComm underscore JC in order to be able to participate in our Twitter chats and to have information on when our next uh, episodes of the podcast are coming out and all sorts of various interesting information. You can also read recaps uh, of the Twitter chats and the uh, podcasts on our website www.psychomjc.org where you can also leave comments and get in touch with each one of us on uh, different topics that you might be interested in. We all have our own um, specialties, so whatever you need help with, you can always uh, leave us a message and we'll try to get back to you as fast as possible. Uh, on the website, you can also subscribe to our newsletter to receive all the updates for upcoming events, Twitter chats, podcast releases, summary of the interesting uh, psychomy topics that we cover in various events. And again, that's www.psychomjc.org. SciComJC uh, is sponsored by Captive Touch, which is a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the SciComJC team. It's produced and edited by me, Nevena Christosova, and our music is compo composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you to all of you in the, the wonderful listeners for joining us. If you have liked it, make sure that you share it with your friends and family. It's important for them to know where they can find information that they can trust and whom to contact. And until next time, stay nerdy.